This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome back to the Neurosurgery Podcast. Here today, I am delighted to be joined by yet another of my bosses here at Rush, Dr. Webster Crowley, who is our Director of Cerebrovascular Neurosurgery. He's a dual-trained neurosurgeon, well-known to many of our listeners who are in that space, in that field, on the national stage. Um, Dr. Crowley is joined as, as part of our initiative this month, which is Stroke Awareness Month in May, to uh, do somewhat of a mini-series about the neurosurgeon's role in treating ischemic stroke at the various stages of presentation and, and management. And we're going to be touching on what I think is a really interesting aspect of the neurosurgeon's role in treating stroke patients. We'll, we'll get into that in a moment, but Dr. Crowley, welcome to the show. Take a moment, uh, say hello to our listeners, and introduce yourself. Great. Thanks, JP, for having me. Uh, as you said, I don't know that I need much introduction. You just you just did mo- most of it, but, uh, but I uh, am a dual-trained neurosurgeon uh, who, um, who heads up our cerebrovascular and endovascular um, uh, section here, um, and I guess, as you say, I'm one of your bosses, so I have that that privilege. Um, but yeah, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Great. So we've been touching on this recently on the show, and like I said, we're going to be having a few conversations coming out this month about stroke. But one of the interesting things happening in this field um, this year and in the past year have been this series of publications and, and large trials that have come to print from around the world, really, looking at expanded indications for mechanical thrombectomy, specifically in the context of what's called a large core stroke. The most recent of these uh, that had North American as well as other uh, other nations' um, patients was Select 2, but there was a large trial from Japan, a large trial from China that came out in the past year also looking at this population of patients. So maybe for our listeners, set the stage a little bit and talk about why that's a significant question to think about doing a thrombectomy in a large core stroke and what the context of that clinical question was before these trials came out. Right, so um, so the, the, the mechanical thrombectomy has proven to, to be substantially effective at increasing uh, functional outcome or improving functional outcome uh, of patients in almost every um, kind of uh, almost every group, basically, right? So initially it was early, and then we could expand an indication where we could go out to 24 hours. Um, you know, we, we definitely know the large vessel, and now we're looking out towards um, uh, towards smaller vessels. Basically, every trial that has been conducted with current devices, the initial um, trials uh, conducted with, with old devices, uh, were not positive, but with the current devices where we've kind of gotten it up to a point where they're actually very effective in getting the clot out in a safe manner, have all shown to be positive. And so the, the, there are a number of, of um, frontiers that, that were, were yet undressed, uh, sorry, unaddressed. Uh, and one of them is large core infarction. And so um, patients that come in and, uh, and either they have been out a, a long ways uh, and therefore have a large completed stroke uh, or patients that, um, that actually were not that long, but maybe they have something else going on like uh, poor cardiac function or, or whatnot. So they were rapid progressors to, to worsen uh, quickly so that a, a stroke um, uh, developed quite quickly. So the, the question arose from that, which is, you know, mechanical thrombectomy has been effective for everything. Is this going to be effective for this group too? And I think um, uh, 
a lot of us were unsure and a lot of us when we see patients would say, yeah, you know, um, the trials showed, uh, you know, 70 uh, milliliters as a cutoff or sometimes 50 milliliters as a cutoff, but, uh, but we would do thrombectomies after a certain point, but when it had a large core infarct, uh, particularly with no penumbra mismatch that that we would, um, we would often not uh, offer that, certainly not as a standard of care. So the trials um, that have recently come out, and, and, and before I get into that, there's other, there's other frontiers, you know, we're, we're part of a trial looking at people with a large vessel occlusion with low NIH scores. We're part of a trial looking at medium vessel occlusions, right? These are all kind of um, uh, different uh, frontiers, I guess, within stroke that we think this patient population has not been proven to work, so let's see if it can expand indications for mm-hmm. those. And so the recent trials, again, looked at the large core infarct and all pretty convincingly showed a benefit towards mechanical thrombectomy when, when compared to um, uh, compared to medical management. So functional independence was, you know, which is modified rank in zero to two, was really two to three times increased with mechanical thrombectomy um, versus uh, medical management. And I think the, the at least the one, we, we took part in, in the select two trial. So, so that one showed um, that basically uh, there were half as many, many patients in uh, modified rank and uh, score of, of five, which is kind of like a lot of people think is worth worse than death, right? To, to be modified yeah. rank of five. So, so it, it, um, halved the rate of patients who ended up in that. So, and, and really the other two trials, the, the Japanese and the Chinese trial, um, uh, all kind of went along with that. Although the Japanese one preceded the other two, but, uh, but basically all, all showed a um, pretty convincing benefit towards mechanical thrombectomy. Yeah. And so I'll, I'll say that the predominant portion of our audience are neurosurgeons, people in neurosurgical training like myself or fellowship. But we do have a, a pretty substantial number of listeners who are in medical school, even in pre-medical level of school and college. And, and so I do want to stress, because I think this is a great case example of this principle in medicine, particularly in interventional medicine as, as surgeons or interventionalists, the risks and the benefits of anything you do to a patient or even giving them advice. And so I think mechanical thrombectomy is a great case study in risk and benefit. So we're, we're talking about uh, restoring perfusion to uh, in the setting of an infarction with an occluded blood vessel, the benefits we're talking about um, are these improved functional outcomes, as you say. And so some of the biggest skepticism before these trials in the setting of a large core infarction was that so much brain is already, at least on an imaging study, suggested to be lost and unsalvageable. And then we think about saving the penumbra for, for the students, that area around uh, the brain that appears to be critically infarcted. So you can save some of that at, at the periphery that's been injured or is at risk of infarction but hasn't yet completed the stroke. And so that's the benefit side of things. But maybe, again, looking historically, we can talk about the risk side of things, which um, when you have someone with a large infarction, I think the predominant risk we think about with rapidly reperfusing that brain is the risk of hemorrhage. So maybe you could talk a, a bit about the historic perspective on the hemorrhage risk and reperfusing a large infarct, and then what we're actually seeing these days now that we're doing it more. Sure. So, so obviously, anytime you're testing a, a procedure against 
um, against a, a not you know something that, that does not involve a procedure you 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 add the procedural risk and so this isn't exactly what you what you mentioned but but one of the first things is the procedural risk so there are are going to be um, you know complications access side complications sure. which I think most of us think are manageable but there are intracranial complications there can be vessel perforations there can be um, uh, dissections things like that right so that that is is kind of cooked into the analysis obviously yeah, and not that to mention anesthesia. Yeah, anesthesia. We, we love to blame. We anesthesia. do love to blame anesthesia. <laughs> um, and right, so so those things are are going to obviously be increased in the in the, um, in the procedural cohort. the The big question I think that you're that you're talking about is is reperfusion hemorrhage, right? So, the concern for reperfusion hemorrhage, um, I think, is um, is varied in, in that I I think that. That one, we haven't seen a huge increase in in symptomatic hemorrhages, but I think most of us believe that when when a hemorrhage happens, it tends to happen into already infarcted brains. So it's not right. as relevant as if it was an infarct into a completely, you know, normal brain, right? So if it if it infarcts into that, sorry, if it bleeds into an infarct and then expands into some massive thing, that's a different that's a different story. But but we frequently see small hemorrhages or hemorrhages within an inf infarct um, core, which which is irrelevant in a lot of ways. Right. Um, I think that you know it happens that with these trials there weren't a, a large increase in, in symptomatic. Um, I mean, we, we saw a, most of them saw a bit of an increase, but it wasn't kind of some dramatic increase where these patients had that. I think that the the other thing that particularly as neurosurgeons that we care about is the decompressive craniectomies, and I know that's. Um, that is a, a big topic for people who are not endovascular or vascular neurosurgeons because most practices have a setup where any neurosurgeon can do the decompressive craniectomy. Obviously, the, the thrombectomy is is, um, uh, is done by, by supervascular endovascular specialists, right? So, but it might be an endovascular neurologist or radiologist doing the thrombectomy, and then it, the, if there's a decompressive craniectomy that's going to that's going to happen. It falls um, sometimes on an unsuspecting uh, neurosurgeon, general, general neurosurgeon, right? Um, so, so the the risk of um, of decompressive craniectomy um, in some of these trials was not substantially greater than than with with medical management. I, I do think, however, the <clears throat> excuse me, the an important conversation to have is um, there there just aren't strong guidelines about whether a decompressed craniectomy is something that everyone does, right? I mean, that's not, yeah. um, not everyone does it. In fact, at many hospitals, um, some of the uh, surgeons feel very strongly about offering decompressive craniectomies, and some do not. And I think that variability creates a problem when it comes to the data that we're seeing here, right? So I think that when, when we as, as neurosurgeons, me as a, as a dual practice neurosurgeon, uh, dual trained neurosurgeon, we kind of have to address the idea of, well, do we offer mechanical thrombectomy? And then if we offer mechanical thrombectomy for a large core infarct, are we then obligated to do a decompressive craniectomy if that if that worsens? And I think that's something that's obviously not born on the data, but I think that's something that that will be a, a question for, for, for departments all over the country, or not always departments, but small practices all over the country. Yeah, and... It, <coughs> excuse me. That's fine. Um... And, and I'll tell you, um, to sound schizophrenic for a moment, I'm a big fan of the author Kurt Vonnegut, and he had this theory when he would write books, and, and, uh, and his approach to literature was that there should be no illusions, and he would hide nothing from 
his readers, and, and he tried to design his books such that if you read the table of contents, you'd get the whole story, because the point for him was not, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, no twists, but the enjoyment for him was actually reading it and the experience of those story beats. And so I'll tell our listeners, this is exactly what I want to talk to you about, Dr. Crowley, is, is you know, we've set the stage talking about these trials and the expanding indications for thrombectomy, but what I really want to get into today is how that impacts the role of all neurosurgeons, not just those performing thrombectomies, but the general role of surgical neurosurgical care in the setting of ischemic stroke. And so not just looking at these large core trials that are coming out, but as you said, all of these other frontiers within uh, the application and, and indication for thrombectomy, medium vessel, uh, degree of mismatch, etc. I think anyone who gives even a cursory amount of attention to this field of medicine writ large, much, much less neurology and neurosurgery, um, can expect that in the coming decade, perhaps the coming few decades, we're going to see continued expansion of the indications for thrombectomy. We're going to see more application of this intervention to stroke patients. And I think that one could deduce that whether there's a sharp increase in symptomatic hemorrhages from more thrombectomies, this general trend of more aggressive care for acute stroke patients is going to translate to an increased demand in decompressive craniectomies for these patients. We've even seen concurrently in the past decade more trials coming out showing benefit to the hemicraniectomies, um, be it, you know, looking at different age cutoffs, looking at left side versus right side. These are all these things that, as you say, when uh, general neurosurgeons are, some are more tentative about offering the hemicraniectomy, these are things that people think about. What's the age of the patient, baseline functional status, is it a left-sided infarct, and, and more trials are coming out also suggesting increasing the indications for the craniectomy. So what do you anticipate happening as, as we see more and more thrombectomies being performed, or we project that more and more will be performed in the coming years, how do you think that will impact the role of the surgical neurosurgeon in the post-thrombectomy care of these stroke patients? Yeah, so, so I, I definitely think that the number of patients that we are asked to consider decompressive craniectomy will increase. Yeah. And so the reason for that is that there is a whole cohort, cohort of patients that we have not been performing uh, mechanical thrombectomy on. And often when people come in with a large core infarct, 100 cc's, 150 cc's larger than that, we generally have the conversation say, look, there is no role for mechanical thrombectomy and um, uh, they're gonna have a very large core infarct and we expect them to either die or have a modified ranking of five and you know, best case scenario, modified ranking of four. And often that kind of sparks a conversation with the patient family over the next day or two of like, would they want that or not, right? And so yeah. there's a day or two to ease into the, to the um, idea that, that their, their family member not, might not make it through. And many of them say they would not want a decompressive craniectomy if they know that this is how their outcome is going to be, say, worst case, you know, best case scenario, they're moderately disabled, but they probably will be severely disabled or, or dead, then, then a lot of families come to accept that or come to grips with that and then don't push for a decompressive craniectomy. When the, again, I think to me, at least the surprising aspect of these trials were that a reasonable number, like 20 to 30%, depending on which trial, 
of patients had a modified ranking of zero to two. Yep. So when we, I mean, but but still, a, a large percentage are going to have a bad functional outcome. So, so when we offer this to patients, I mean, I, if I say, what do I see happening? I see, um, I see us offering this to may, way more patients, and we hopefully will tell within the first couple days whether they are going to be in the zero to two category or whether they're going to be in the four and five category. And the four and five category, obviously the ones that were considered decompressed craniectomies, the ones that are zero to two aren't going to need it generally, right? Yeah. So so I think that we will be, um, and, and, and during that time, the patients will have, I think, received some hope, right? So the patient's family will say, oh, there's a chance that they could, they could have a good outcome from this, although it's much smaller than if they didn't have the large infarct, there's still a chance. And so I think that time for them to wrap their head around this, um, uh, they might have a bad outcome, and, and if they if they do, then we don't want to put them through decompressive craniectomy. That is shortened, and that's maybe yeah. even eliminated. I think that um, the other thing is that we are definitely seeing, and at least in, in, in our experience here, the ones that we are doing um, uh, mechanical thrombectomies that don't fall into that zero to two category they are rapid progressors towards decompressive craniectomy, right? Like yeah. mechanical thrombectomy at noon, decompressive craniectomy at 8 p.m., right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, that is like a real thing that's happening. So um, so it it needs to, you know, it's not to say, hey, every patient should, should get a mechanical thrombectomy, although a lot of shops are doing that. We say everyone who comes in 24 hours with large vessel occlusion, we're just going to do it. Um, but, but I do think that the patients need to be aware, patients' family needs to be aware that this is, there still is a high likelihood of a poor outcome. And then to address that conversation, say, you know, if, if we can get it out and patient has a, has a um, shows signs of improving, then great. But if they don't, would you want to progress to a decompressed craniectomy? Um, then, then it would be beneficial to have that conversation up front. I mean, I think, you know, for a place like Rush where we've got it all here, it's just, it's a, it's a less disruptive conversation to have. It's, you know, but, but I think that the, the real or a real problem is going to be, you know, so many hospitals do mechanical thrombectomies. They're, you know, mechanical thrombectomy capable, but, but don't have decompressive craniectomy uh, yeah. capabilities. And so, um, you know, should everyone who gets a mechanical thrombectomy then be transferred to a neurosurgical center, um, uh, that's certainly a question that needs to be, be answered. Yeah, it, it is an interesting question because as, as you've pointed out, the mechanical thrombectomy you could think of as the function-saving procedure. That, that's the procedure where the goal of surgery, the goal of intervention is improving the patient's clinical functional status after this injury. The decompressive craniectomy, that's life-saving. We're, we're, not, you know, we're not looking to change... Um, what what sort of function or what sort of person comes out of this thing, we're just looking to stop them from dying. And so the data we have, and I think a lot of the practice patterns, the habits, the biases that surgeons have about offering craniectomy is born from an era where the patients considered for craniectomy were very different. It had very different prognoses because many fewer people were getting thrombectomies. And so I wonder if you can imagine how your approach, you know, I, I won't ask you to speak for all neurosurgeons, but your approach, you, you're, you're, at this, you're at the tip of the spear in this uh, area, and you think about these things every day. So now when you get somebody with a large core infarct, but 
perhaps they they qualified for thrombectomy after these new trials, you anticipate that they're going to be um, someone who recovers better. Are you do you have a lower threshold to offer them a craniectomy because you know the life you'd be saving is further from that MRS five? Um, I don't. I don't know that I approach it that way. I think I think in in my practice probably the the way that it, that it will end up going down is that um, that we should hopefully know pretty quickly who is going to fall, who's be more likely to fall into that zero to two. It's not the people that have a giant infarct that is that are have you know tremendous herniation that need a decompressive crani- that need a decompressive craniectomy that are probably going to fall into that zero to yeah. two category. And so I think from my standpoint, it doesn't change. Basically, this is a separate question, which is, do you believe that it makes sense to offer decompressive craniectomy for um, for a large uh, core infarct or not? And I think most neurologists, most stroke neurologists who do this day in and day out feel strongly that it is um, it is something that we should be offering. Yeah. And therefore, most cerebrovascular neurosurgeons or, or neurosurgeons who work with a, with a um, strong cohesive stroke neurology group also um, feel that way. Um, but but again, that's where the conversation. That's where when <clears throat> when you have that initial conversation, thrombectomy or not, it's not like it's an unruptured aneurysm where there is a real chance that not treating it, the aneurysm will never bother them their whole life. Right. right? When when patient comes in for mechanical thrombectomy, we can say pretty convincingly with a large core infarct, if we do nothing, it is likely to be an MRS of five or six. If yep. we do something. There is a improved chance, but still not great chance that you're going to have a, a your your loved one's going to have an improved outcome. Um, once they get to the point where they are talking about decompressive craniectomy, that chance of having that great in- outcome is, I think, virtually non-existent. Right? This yeah. so this is more of the how would your loved one want to live? Right? Because I right. think most people say, yeah, look, if, if there's even if there's a ten to twenty percent chance of getting a modified ranking of zero to two. Like, yeah, let, it, who cares about the complication risks? Like, this is worth the complication risk, right? right. Um, but but once you get to the point where you are considering a decompressive craniectomy, that's a different story. Does your loved one, will they want to live like this? Because this is more likely the way it's going to be. Yeah. And, you know, as we're coming to an end here to try land the plane, I will, I will tug the thread of, of something you said previously, thinking about not here to, at a place like Rush, where a tertiary center, where a, a stroke center with a huge volume and a, a robust, dedicated team across all specialties involved, but when you put yourself in the shoes of someone at a community hospital, not at a tertiary center, who has thrombectomy capacity, they, they do a thrombectomy in a large core patient now, and we, we see transfers that we get to Rush for people who had large strokes maybe with or without thrombectomies at other hospital and get transferred here, quote, for hemicranial watch. Sometimes immediately the, the day of the stroke or the day of the thrombectomy they've had, sometimes they've been in a medical ICU at another hospital for a couple of days, and now they've had some clinical change or perhaps a scan shows some early swelling and they get transferred here. And we have to start thinking about you know, doing the detective work of what's been happening in the past few days. Now we're meeting the family at this at this stage in their whole experience. 
And now it's in our lap to figure out, is this a good craniectomy candidate or not, and start having those conversations. So now that we've talked about your practice, I, I will ask you to put on the hat of the, the general neurosurgeon out in the world and you know j- just your take, your opinions. What do you think should be done, or if it's easier, what do you anticipate will start happening across communities when patients start having these large core infarcts uh, treated with thrombectomy at hospitals without surgical capability for the, the post-thrombectomy care. Do, do you think that referrals should start happening earlier? Do you, uh, do you think that they should be watched at their own hospital until, a stern, uh, until they start to take a turn? What, what do you foresee happening there? Yeah, so, I mean, there's a lot to, to kind of address there. I, I yeah. think that, obviously I'm biased, and I think that there's a real benefit to having full capabilities at all at, at one place, but I also am a realist and realize that that's not something that is possible. That's not how we can deliver stroke care to, to our country is if we force them to only go to places that, that have everything, right? Um, as far as early versus late transfer, I'm always a proponent of having it happen earlier rather than later. Mm. This And we're not talking about a 10 cc basal ganglia bleed right? right that happens to expand later like that that doesn't always happen but if there is someone and, and we're not talking about a m3 occlusion that there's a low likelihood of of progressing to a large core infarct but if there is a completed large core infarct i see very i see only bad coming out of waiting to transfer until they are an extremist, right? To waiting until they've completely decompensated and then they need it now when transfers take hours, right? So so certainly I think if um, a, a couple ways to go about this, if, if a place does not have neurosurgical capabilities and performs a large vessel occlusion uh, mechanical thrombectomy and then decides to transfer, I don't think that's any different than what they would do I don't think it should be any different than what they would do if someone already came to them with a completed infarct. I think they should treat it as if it, someone came to them with an already completed infarct. So if it if it your institution in you know um, I don't know uh, Minot, North Dakota uh, uh, does mechanical thrombectomies and um, or sorry does not do mechanical thrombectomies and a patient comes in and has a completed infarct. Would that institution transfer them to to the larger institution that has neurosurgical capabilities uh, on on the possibility that they would need to decompress craniectomy? And if they would, then they should do the same thing mm. post thrombectomy. Um, they shouldn't bank on it being the ten percent, twenty percent that they have a modified zero to two or whatever, yeah. right? So yeah, I, I think that that most institutions have kind of a pathway that they've already utilized already identified to say this patient comes from a large stroke you know most people they keep the small strokes and then they transfer out the large strokes and i think yeah. that, pro- that i don't think that'll be any different people will but but again if someone comes in a large vessel occlusion they do a thrombectomy and they don't have the capability to decompress craniectomy unless the patient says patient's family says we want nothing to do with the decompressed craniectomy this is you know all or all or none if we can get a good outcome, then great. But if it's going to be a bad outcome, then we don't want that. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you wouldn't transfer that patient. But everyone else, I think it makes sense to transfer early. Yeah, and I guess it, I should say the other side of that coin in terms of, of possible ways to 
um, address that increased demand for craniectomy. Instead of bringing the patients to the surgeons, we just train more neurosurgeons and get them out in the world. And perhaps in, in the middle of North Dakota, where you don't have uh, disease prevalence or a population to support a neurosurgeon living there and practicing there outside of emergencies, that's going to be a transfer to a tertiary center. But in more populated areas within major cities, uh, the solution might just be getting neurosurgeons in more of these community hospitals so that they can offer craniectomy. Right, and every neurosurgeon in the world can do decompressed craniectomy. Yeah. That is not a, um, that that is um, bread and butter. It should be bread and butter from a, from a neurosurgical standpoint. I mean, I guess that the issue is, does, does the place that you're transferring the patient to would they agree to do a decompressed crani- craniectomy? Because I know a number of neurosurgeons who say, no, I don't, I don't think that the data supports me doing this. And in my practice, I do not offer it to patients. And I think that is, um, that's a fair, that's a fair, um, yeah. that's a fair thing to say. So, so for those, obviously a place, if they're going to transfer someone for a decompressed craniectomy, they need to transfer to a place that has a neurosurgeon who's yeah, going to perform that. And hope, hopefully the accepting physician who probably is not the neurosurgeon Hopefully the accepting physician, be it stroke neurology, the critical care, knows their surgeon or talks to their surgeon before accepting the patient. Um, Great. Well, I I will say, uh, to bring this to a close, to make a sharp left turn, like so many luminaries of your generation, you're a graduate of the University of Virginia and trained there under Dr. Jane, uh, a giant in our field. So um, completely turning away from this important topic about the the future of neurosurgery, if I could ask you to look back and any Dr. Jane stories, UVA stories from back in the day that, that come to mind, j- just because if I have somebody from UVA in those days, I would be remiss not to ask um, a- any happy memories or uh, educational memories from, from your time there. They're, they're all happy memories for the most part, and I think I blocked out the, the bad <laughs> ones. But, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, look, uh, there were so many, you know, he, he made our department family and... Um, you know, part of it was that we had um, we had conference every Saturday morning, and we had journal club at his house every Sunday, and um, and he took an interest in our lives outside of the hospital. Uh, and um, uh, as as far as as that goes, I, I one of the the real things that I learned from him is that um, if you show people that you work with, and particularly trainees that you work with, that you care about them as people then they will um, uh, drive through walls for you, right? They, mm. will, um, they will do anything for you. And I think that um, particularly now where, um, you know, discipline is, is um, truthfully a challenge in a lot of, in a lot of ways, right? Um, it is no longer acceptable to put people on punitive call. It's no, I mean, right, there's just a lot of stuff that we can't do anymore. You know, Dr. Jane, um, uh, we knew he cared about us as people. He, um, uh, he and, and therefore, um, when he was disappointed in something I did, um, if he scolded me, for lack of a better word, which it wasn't really scolding, but if he admonished me for doing something that, that he did not believe should be done, I never took it personally because I knew he actually cared about me as a person, and I, I took mm. it more, much more constructively. So his approach was fantastic. Um, 
I, I do, you know, we used to, so after Saturday morning rounds, um, we would do film rounds where we would have the, the giant board with the, with the uh, x-rays up and we would go through his cases that he finished and the cases for the next week. And then we would do rounds and it was like every resident in the department would round with him from patient to patient. And he had a, you know, a, a large uh, doctor's bag that one of us would carry and we walk around. And one of my favorite, th- uh, funniest stories that, that whenever he saw something that, um, he would not want, um, he, you know, for instance, um, we had a guy who put in an ICP monitor in and he shaved essentially half the head to put in, a, put in a bolt. <laughs> and, um, you knew that, that he was not happy with what you do. Cause you'd come in and you'd say, well, that's one way to do it. And if he said, that's one way <laughs> to do it, you knew that, you knew that that wasn't, um, something he was extremely, um, uh, happy about. Uh, but just to, to end on a personal note, so so when I um, when I uh, proposed to my wife, so so um, he knew my wife Angela, he knew her name. He she would come to all the parties at, at his house, just like all of the spouses and and um, uh, uh, girlfriends uh, and boyfriends at the time um, uh, to his house. He knew everyone. Um, and when I proposed to my wife, I was presenting some of Ed Laws' work actually at the European Association meeting in Glasgow, Scotland. And I remember we got back Saturday night and she obviously said yes. And Sunday morning I called up Dr. Jane. I said, hey, Dr. Jane, it's Webster. Do you mind if I stop by for something? And so I I, I came in and, and my now wife and I walked in. He was in the back in his backyard. And I think he kind of knew it was coming. I said, Dr. Jane, um, we're engaged. And he... Um, whatever he had planned for the rest of the day he canceled and uh and he and his wife noelle and me and my wife uh, angela um went through three bottles of champagne just <laughs> literally just this whole and so he just again um we went as a as someone now training people if if people know that they that you care about them as um as people and uh, want them to be parts of your life and want to be part of their lives. It's just, uh, it creates a a much more um, cohesive teaching relationship, I think, that benefits both parties. So he was the most influential teacher I've ever had in my life. um, uh, And I, when he was in the hospital the last um, week, he was um, unconscious and I I um, I was faculty and I would round every day and I'd go in and I'd kiss him on his forehead and tell him, tell him I loved him, even though he was unconscious. It just, he was, um, he was the greatest. So thanks for asking. Uh, yeah, those are a handful of beautiful memories. Um, for, for those of you listening, I wish you could see the way Dr. Crowley's smiling just thinking about some of those times with, with Dr. Jane. Um, th- there are no words to summarize that. Uh, thank you for sharing that and uh, for talking about this important topic today. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, JP. I really appreciate it. This was fun. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.